This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is Patrick J. Murphy, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm a professor of management at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois, and I've been here for 11 years now. I started my career here, and I just achieved the um, the highest academic rank that the university offers this year on July 1, and during my time here, I have worked with approximately 110 to 115 Chicago entrepreneurial ventures. And I've done that in the context of teaching entrepreneurship as well as in my own side projects and um, formally and informally. And through that experience, I've, I've gleaned some insights that I think are pretty unique to entrepreneurial ventures. And that's what gave me the initial um, idea about trying to carve out a space where we could talk about how and why mutinies occur in these types of ventures. Now, and and Patrick, for those of you listening who, who perhaps didn't recognize his name, you will soon enough. Give it time. But Patrick knows his stuff. Like he said earlier, he is he is a full professor. He's a phenomenal professor at DePaul. He knows his stuff. And one of the things I think is interesting is he comes at this leading entrepreneurial organizations and leading organizations as a whole with a little bit of his own background uh, as a sailor and looks into management history, which Patrick and I um, met at the Academy of Management Conference about a month ago. And we really, um, that was my first introduction into the sort of what the management history division was all about. And I found it absolutely fascinating um, that you can have all of this modern day research, but sometimes you can look back into history and find very, very similar similar lessons. And, and the one Patrick has really found uh, and publicized is this idea of mutiny. And the book is called Mutiny and its Bounty, Leadership Lessons from the Age of Discovery. Um, it's Patrick along with his co-author, Ray Coy. Um, Patrick, let's, let's talk a little bit about this mutiny idea because so I I, when I grew up and I think to you know pirate movies and movies about ships and even films you know famous films like mutiny on the bounty mutiny is always sort of this bad thing a thing to be avoided etc and where did that kind of idea come from and is it really is it accurate does it reflect the actual history of mutinies well it's true that um, mutiny has very ominous overtones Um, like we say in the introduction of the book it's it's one of those words that has its own built-in exclamation point. It's sort of something that, you know, you might cry out at a meeting or something if things aren't going your way, sort of half-jokingly, but there's always these kind of subtle overtones to it. And it is cultural. Um, you're right. Anthropologically, there have been key events that have happened over the past hundred years that, that account for that. Um, you mentioned the movies like uh, Mutiny on the Bounty and the Cane Mutiny, and um, this is something that mutiny is something that really captures the imaginations of people because it's implicitly human. Um, even going back to our most foundational texts and writings, like, like even in the in the first book of the Bible, um, the defiance of a higher power of authority which happened after, um, well, in that case, two people coordinated at a very basic level is something that people just respond to. And there's many other examples and stories throughout history. Um, 
in the book, what really got my interest going was in reading about the types of ventures that would sail the ocean in the 1400s and the 1500s, primarily out of Portugal and Spain. And then about 50 to 100 years later, they started coming out of England and France. This notion that if the leader wasn't uh, performing up to par or if the leader was taking the venture into a place where the overall venture was threatened, this coordinated upward defiance or what we would call mutiny was something that happened very naturally. It, um, it was not viewed necessarily as a bad thing in that part of the definition of leadership was knowing how to recognize a mutiny, knowing how to respond to one and when to respond to one, and, and even harnessing the energy of a mutiny for the good of the enterprise while keeping your position. That was uh, very much a part of what it meant to be a leader, to be able to lead one of these things. And I've always been very intrigued by that. And as I say, that was in the 1400s and the 1500s. Later in history, around the first decade or two of the 1600s, of the 17th century, when England began to develop as more of a seafaring empire, um, a couple of very important things happened. Um, well, first of all, their empire was not based on exploration and discovery and conquest, I suppose, as much as Portugal's and Spain's were. It was, made, it was based much more on commerce. And two events we cite in the book, um, just, just briefly, in 1553, uh, a guy that is the subject of Chapter 3, Sebastian Cabot, drafted a, it's about a 30 to 40 page essentially a leadership manual for the leaders of ventures that were going to take uh, boats out in his uh, company, the company he founded with Henry Hudson's grandfather called the Company of Merchant Adventurers. It was, um, as I say, a leadership manual, but it really obsessed and it talked about how any dissension amongst the ranks or any disagreements with the leader was something that needed to be uh, squashed very quickly. And Cabot, son of John Cabot, his father sailed five years after Columbus and failed to discover anything at all, and he kind of disappears from the history books. But his son is really a case study, and um, he's a great example of the kind of leader that had to put on airs and kind of um, represent himself as something other than he was. And so he was um, mutinied against constantly, but he has this amazing ability in the book to to avoid these things. And so he was a master at um, avoiding mutiny and, um, and stopping it. And he put all of that into a document that became extremely influential because the Company of Merchant Adventurers in the late 1500s opened up the trade through the White Sea with, with Russia and Ivan the Terrible. And that was a boon to England, and it actually preceded the their golden age and the expansion of their empire, which, of course, became the largest in world history. And so that document that I mentioned was more or less seared into the culture of this expanding huge empire as an embedding mechanism, and it, it, it very directly and explicitly said that any organized defiance of the leader was something that needed to be crushed immediately. Now, a few years after that, um, probably late 1570s, early 1580s, that was when Sir Francis Drake replicated Magellan's uh, circumnavigation 
Magellan's venture succeeded, but Magellan himself uh, was killed in the Philippines. And um, he retraced Magellan's route, and he actually did a little more than that. But he, Drake, executed a, a mutineer um, in the same um, bay, the Bay of St. Julian, that Magellan had his huge mutiny. And um, that went into the logbooks, of course. And it was already becoming a little bit um, extreme to actually execute people on these ventures for, for um, violations. They, would, they started marooning them by this point. But in executing a mutineer and then going on to achieve an amazing accomplishment, um, being the first person to circumnavigate the Earth and, and survive doing so, that was also another uh, key inflection point in history that led the Western world to think about mutiny as evil. And then the rest of the history, of course, is the rise of the Industrial Revolution, which was based on commerce, much like England's uh, empire expansion. And then in a bureaucratic form and the various kinds of structures that we see in industrial organizations, something like coordinated upward defiance, which tends to work very well in a, in a flat, adaptable, nimble entrepreneurial venture, is very hostile to the dominant logic. And so that was largely how it took hold. And in fact, in the Declaration of Independence of our own country, um, there is an allusion to one of Britain's three mutiny acts. I mean, this was a big deal in Britain at the time, and, and part of the reason that those early uh, revolutionaries left was in defiance of what was a very overbearing, explicit damnation of anything that would challenge the existing order. And so what really brought all this together for me was when, in working with all of these entrepreneurial ventures over the past 10 or 11 years, there is no question, I, I know from observing them and working with them, that mutinies happen constantly. If, if a leader is not doing his or her job, it, it's something that they don't even have to talk about. It, it just happens. He or she is going to face friction. And then, you know, many of your listeners may not know that the whole history of Silicon Valley, which is arguably our most entrepreneurial uh, context in the world today, it started with a mutiny at Shockley Semiconductor in the late 1950s. And um, it set off this kind of spawning um, logic that um, generated new ventures. And so there's a very special relationship between entrepreneurship and mutiny that I wanted to capture. And looking at ventures today, it's very difficult to do that. You can't talk to people and interview them and get data that um, you'd consider to be really objective and pure. Everybody has agendas. There's a lot of secrecy around it. And so that's why we have to go to history. When looking at a dead industry, there's a, there's a wonderful kind of objectivity that comes out of it, even though the human dynamics are the same. Hmm. No, I think that's fascinating, and I I love your your pointing out that you know Silicon Valley and the history it, it was birthed in a mutiny, and really not just one mutiny, but several, if I remember, because you had the original, then you had Fairchild Semiconductor, then you had people jumping ship from there to found Intel, and then really even now, I think one of the things that separates out Silicon Valley from a lot of other places that are trying to be uh, hotbeds of innovation is it's darn near impossible to get an NDA enforced in California, which makes it even easier to just sort of leave and take all of your um, information and knowledge with you uh, in pursuit of what you thought that company, that original company should have been doing and, and sort of do it better. And how many companies, great companies were started out of the idea of, well, they're doing this, but we can do it um, better. 
And I think you're right about the idea that it's really hard to separate out the subjectivity from the objective in, in modern day organizations and modern day mutinies. But there are some parallels, especially even between the uh, mutinies of old and the, sea, the, the age of sort of conquest and, and the seafaring times and mutinies in modern organizations now. Uh, t- talk a little bit about some of those parallels and maybe even some of the differences. I mean, obviously, one glaring difference, you can't really execute anybody who uh, is a mutineer in today's modern organizations. But talk a little bit about some of the parallels and differences. Okay. You, you, can't, you can't execute a person like, you, like they did in the early history, but uh, you can kill their job or, or a department. And so the the, the execution, if you will, occurs um, in, the, in more of a formal professional context. But in terms of the spark that would um, lead to mutiny in the historical context, what I found in reading these old journals and logbooks that we mined um, from, the, from the ventures that went uh, out to sea was that there was usually a leadership decision or an action that violated shared values amongst the members. And shared values are something, if you've read the book, you see are extremely important to um, understanding what happens when a mutiny occurs. In modern ventures now, it's the same thing. The leader makes a decision or undertakes an action that violates shared values of the members. But it's a different kind of value today than it was in the past. And if you think about Maslow's hierarchy, which probably all of your listeners are familiar with, that is a hierarchy of values. And so in the historical context, if you think about what it meant for a wooden ship to go out on the sea and embrace physical uncertainty in the natural environment, what the members of those ventures at bottom really had in common and what they were all um, motivated and thinking about in the same way had a lot to do with their, their safety. Um, their physiological needs, uh, the food that was available, and these kinds of things. If you think about the kinds of values that reside higher up in the hierarchy in Maslow's model, these are things like um, social needs or esteem needs. Now, those are the kind of values that are salient in modern contexts. You can think about people going to work today and working on a team if, it, if it's not a good situation or if it's not a good company to work for or if a leader is seen as, um, as a bad leader that needs to be deposed. Very often it has something to do with that leader or the authority structure violating shared values around social needs or esteem needs. However, in the, in the historical context, it's the very same mechanism except the values that were violated had more to do with the lower-level needs, i.e. physiological needs or security needs and that sort of thing. And so the mechanism being exactly the same, uh, albeit just a little bit deeper in the hierarchy in the historical sense, um, tells us a lot. Well, first of all, I think there's a relationship there between the, the violent outcomes that often occurred on those ships. When you're talking about values that are closer to... Um, the human condition, um, I think any backlash that comes out of it is bound to be a lot more intense and probably physical. And then if you look at the, um, the modern contexts, these are social values, these are intellectual values. So mutiny is still intense, 
for the very same reasons, but they tend to be intellectually intense or socially intense. Uh, rarely do they come to blows or fights or these kinds of things, although that, that does tend to happen, but it's a lot less common today. And so there's a very special parallel there, and it has a lot to do with what it means to be, um, to be human. There, there is no other species on Earth that coordinates and removes its leaders in the same way that humans do. You can think about um, you know, various groups of animals, such as um, gorillas in the forest and whatnot, but when a, when a leader is removed, it's usually the case of one younger member, the, the, the next strongest male, removing that. It's not like a coordinated attempt in the same way, and it's certainly not as strategic as what we see in the um, seafaring ventures. So given that we're talking about something that is natural to how humans um, view the world and how they coordinate with one another and perform, I think right now the main contribution of the book is for the entrepreneurial community, this, this growing, burgeoning, large entrepreneurial culture. Some people have called it the entrepreneurial age has a chance to embed this notion back into its um, dominant logic in a formal way. I, I think the worst thing that an entrepreneurial venture can have happen to it is that the leader is entrenched and the leader doesn't deserve to be the leader and the leader thereby through wanting to protect his or her position ends up hurting the venture. Members who are closer to the action and closer to the work, closer to the customers, or closer to the technology, um, usually have a clearer, better idea about what the venture should actually do. And when you're talking about the levels of resources that entrepreneurial ventures tend to have, um, that is, they don't have very many of them usually, one mistake can be, can be fatal. And so this is something that can actually be ameliorative to an entrepreneurial venture. It's something that can save it. And I think, uh, the leadership research and the way we think about leadership today has a chance to embed this other substitute for leadership back into the way we think about it. Yeah, totally. And you know, to some extent, I think we're our, our preconceived notions, as we talked about earlier, are always this idea that, that mutiny um, is always bad, always needs to be crushed. And truthfully, it comes from how the leader sort of responds to it properly. And in, in the book, when you talk about shared values, you talk a lot about trust and distrust and, and the different ways that trust can be flowing through a leader-follower relationship, how that can create different types of opportunities for, for mutiny, etc. But I, I guess one of the things I, I really want to know a little bit more about is that what is that role of trust and also, how, how does that affect or, or what is the optimal response from a leader who begins to sense that level of mutiny that maybe the trust, uh, the trust, distru- the trusting relationship is a little disconnected and, and beginning to show signs of a potential mutiny? Well, trust is something that um, practicing managers and leaders don't think enough about. It's actually a fairly complex construct. Um, even, in, even in academia, where we spend a lot more time thinking about the nature of these, these, these constructs, we, it's very easy to forget that it's possible to trust and distrust somebody at the same time. There was uh, an important article that came out in um, the management literature in the late 90s about trust and distrust, and it essentially reframed the the construct of trust from a, a single dimensional construct to a multi-dimensional one and so the normal way or the practical dominant way to think about trust and distrust is as opposites that is 
to the degree that you trust a leader more, um, you distrust them less. And what this article says, and what we can see very clearly when we read about these um, historic cases, is that that's not the case. Trust is different from distrust. To trust somebody means that you share their values. Um, and these can be values like we just talked about a little bit earlier, or they can be values that define a culture in an organization or even in a nation. If you believe and you can feel that a leader or a member, from the leader's perspective, that is, if you can, if you can feel that they share your values, there's a certain kind of um, affinity or closeness between the two individuals that is best regarded as trust. Distrust is different. It can be, it can be high or low quite independently of whether trust is high or low. Distrust has to do with the competence or the technical expertise of the, the leader or the member. And so if they're not very good at their job tasks or their skills are not very high or their performance is not very good, we say one should distrust their technical ability. They may be a good person. You may share values with them. You may, um, you, may, you may even like them a lot, but if their job performance level is low or if their ability or their knowledge or their skills is low, then you are distrusting them at the same time. This became very important in the historic cases because it was surprisingly common for these seafaring ventures to be led by foreigners. Uh, Christopher Columbus, most people know, came from Italy, and he did go to Portugal and sail for 10 years before he ended up in Spain, but he was a foreigner there. Magellan, who is the subject of Chapter 2, was Portuguese, and he was sailing for Spain. Sebastian Cabot, in Chapter 3, he was also from Italy like uh, Columbus was, but he went to England with his father at a young age, and then he wound up in Spain for 30 years, and then he went back to England, but he was always sort of a, a foreigner. Henry Hudson, who is uh, the subject of Chapter 4, who also encountered a very famous mutiny, he sailed for the Dutch at one point as a foreigner. And so when these things happened, what one, what, what one sees in the historic documents is that there's a disconnect between the values that define what the le how the leader views the world and the values that define how the members view the world. And we still see that today, of course, when, when somebody from another national culture comes in to lead an organization, sometimes there are these kinds of dynamics. But even, even somebody from another organization that has an entirely different culture can enter a new organization and then start to perform as a leader. And everybody kind of understands that that individual does not share their values because they haven't been there long enough to really become acculturated into the new organization, or, or perhaps that's just never going to happen. And so trust is low, but everybody may recognize that that individual is an expert at their, at their job. And so once one begins to view trust and distrust through this kind of lens, it's a little bit easier to think about mutiny. And so, for example, in the, in, in the book, when we talk about leaders that are highly trusted and share values with their, their members, 
the way to depose a leader like that tends to be more of a more of a tactical mutiny, um, and rather than a strategic mutiny. Um, if you if you want to depose this leader, Henry Hudson was deposed this way. He was English on his fourth enterprise, and he was leading a crew of mostly English. It just got to the point where they couldn't take it anymore, and they they rose up and they set him adrift in a boat with um, with some other crew members. And had they spent more time strategizing and thinking about how to maneuver and depose that individual, they would have run into a barrier associated with the fact that he actually shared their values. Now, Magellan was exactly the opposite. Um, Unlike Hudson, Magellan quelled the mutiny, but this was a leader who was not highly trusted at all. However, distrust in his competence and his ability was very low. He was, he was an expert. In fact, in the book, we describe him as probably one of the best navigators in the age of discovery because at the, at the relatively early year that he did what he did, I mean, nobody else was even close. Um, for example, Sebastian Cabot, who came just five years later and tried to do what Magellan did going down the coast of South America, Sebastian Cabot had to stop at the uh, Rio de la Plata, where, which is about it's over a thousand miles north of the Strait of Magellan, which is way down the coast. There's no way he could have taken the Enterprise down there like like Magellan did. So Magellan was a was an expert, and he was a, a fierce, shrewd kind of seafarer who gave who gave orders very directly, and he didn't even want to talk very much with the members. One, in reading the historic case, one can almost imagine that he. He knew that if he um, uh, collaborated closely and, and, and communicated too much with the members, they would start to get a sense of where his limits were, and he, he knew they were allied against him. And so he gave orders to the other ships through um, um, uh, different torches and different uh, lights that he would put on the back of his ship to uh, tell them to follow close or to you know tack out to the, the east or the west, and that's really how he communicated with them. And then when the mutiny began to um, rise up against him, it was a very uh, tactical mutiny, kind of like what the members tried to do with Hudson, but because uh, Magellan was essentially a tactical expert and he knew the operations very purely, he wasn't, he wasn't caught up in the personal dynamics at all. He just saw that force as something that needed to be quelled, and he, he quelled it brutally in the, uh, the Bay of St. Julian down the coast of South America. As an aside, it's very interesting. I, I mentioned Drake, Sir Francis Drake earlier, who replicated Magellan's voyage. When he sailed down the um, coast of South America, he wintered in the same bay that Magellan did 60 years earlier, and he found the skeletons of the mutineers that Magellan had executed there, and they were they were still on the the gibbets that Magellan had set up when they when they left the bay and they left them there. That's a um, kind of a, gr- a gruesome picture, uh, a gruesome picture, and one that doesn't necessarily compare to killing a person's job, but nonetheless, um, there, there. You know, there's a saying uh, that those who fail to learn the lessons of history are, are doomed to repeat them, and I think the irony here is that in, in the case of mutiny, I think people have. Uh, assumed they know the full story of, of mutinies in the past, assumed they know um, how to always respond to a mutiny, etc., and then and yet sometimes they haven't, and particularly with entrepreneurial leaders, 
where sort of the age of entrepreneurship can draw uh, huge parallels between the age of these um, seafaring voyages. And I think there are definitely lessons uh, in there that I think are absolutely amazing. I want to encourage our listeners to check out Mutiny and its bounty to learn those lessons, avoid uh, being doomed to repeat history. But if it's okay with you, Patrick, I, w- I want to shift a little bit from the book uh, to you and ask you a couple questions. Uh, first, what are you reading right now? Well, right now I'm reading a book by a historian who he passed away a few years ago. His name is Peter Munz, and um, M-U-N-Z. Peter Munz is the only person in world history who was a student of both Karl Popper, who is my uh, essentially my intellectual hero in New Zealand, and then later on he was a student of um, Wittgenstein at Cambridge. And those who like to read a lot about um, epistemology know that uh, Wittgenstein and Popper represented two very um, um, essentially views that were hostile to one another in terms of how um, they explained the growth of knowledge. And so Munes has a fantastic book, which, I, which I've already read, called Beyond Wittgenstein's Poker, which is a first-hand account of a famous uh, argument between Popper and Wittgenstein when Popper visited Cambridge to give a talk. And um, as the story goes, um, they were arguing over what is, a, what is a moral problem and what isn't a moral problem and do they even exist. And then Wittgenstein took a poker out of a fireplace and sort of gestured at Popper with it and said, well, give me an example of a moral violation. And Popper said something to the effect of, well, waving a hot poker at an invited speaker would be one. And Wittgenstein then throws the poker down in a rage on the floor and exits the room. And Bertrand Russell was there. And um, Peter Munes wrote a fascinating account of what that was um, like. And so he's a fantastic historian. Um, and he, he wrote a book called The Shapes of Time, which talks a lot about historical imagination and talks about the need not necessarily to try to understand the past as it happened. In other words, to try to find out what are the facts and what are the errors and then hone in on the facts in order to explain things. But that the real explanatory power of history comes from trying to get a sense of how the people who lived during that time interpreted those events, which may be very different than the way we interpreted them now. And so for him, Historic research has a lot to do with getting to know the the culture and the values that defined a particular time and place in the past, and then describing things through that lens in order to really get the true benefit of of learning. And so this book is called The The Shapes of Time. I'm, I'm working through that one right now. I have a couple of other things that I'm working through at home. Um, mostly they're historical books about Portugal. I, I became a a big fan of Portuguese history when I researched Mutiny and its Bounty. Um, they were really just the best seafarers in world history, and so there's a lot of great work out there about how they began to think about leading a venture into the ocean and how they built a team and how they raised money from the crown and how they pitched their venture to the court. And um, there's a lot of parallels with what entrepreneurs have to do today, and so I'm, I'm very fascinated in that. Yeah, it, it it to me the uh, the parallels between entrepreneurship and, and seafaring are, are fascinating, and I actually uh, I want <laughs> I kind of want to thank you for tipping me off to them when we uh, had the chance to first meet, and then also thank you for coming on the show and kind of enlightening everybody um, to those parallels because, like as we said earlier. 
there are lessons history is rich with lessons and rich with lessons that meet what from an empirical side of research we're also just trying to verify things like trust um, etc are, are sort of taking over some of the traditional rigid management systems and and giving some room to think about these concepts of mutiny. And so I, I love it. I appreciate the, the parallels between all of this. And I want to ask, you know, by, by no means is the work done. Um, but along that line, what's, what's next for you and what are you looking at uh, for future research or for a future book or even just something that's fascinating you that's going on now? Well, as, as Spinoza, I think it was Spinoza said, if you, if you want to understand the present, you have to study the, the past. And it's very true. I think what I'd really like to do next is offer a uh, probably a journal article or some kind of major contribution to the management field that reframes the way we use history. There's a you know given what Spinoza the Spinoza quote that I just mentioned um, the field the broader domain of business studies um, has kind of painted itself into a corner in a sense because in business there's this unstated assumption that one must look at what is current and what is right now and what what are business people doing right now and our data need to be um, fairly contemporary rather than old and it's sort of this unstated value that drives a lot of research in the business world and historians will tell you that um, a a great archival data set or um, historic data can offer fantastic insights into what's going on right now for reasons I mentioned earlier about being um, less subjective and more objective and um, also because many of the many of the dynamics that different members and different organizations, different kinds of uh, entities grappled with and dealt with in the past exist in very pure forms. For instance, um, I did some work on service management on transatlantic ocean liners in a paper six or seven years ago in order to understand service management today. And now the provision of services has to do with like customer service or um, uh, customer service that goes above and beyond and understanding how organizations can manage to encourage their members to to perform at this level. But there's really no organization today that has anything to compare with how it was on transatlantic ocean liners, which had like seven or eight different classes of service. They even had an informal economy built into the larger formal organizational structure that was um, essentially an an incentive system to um, drive service provision to the various um, customers that were there. And by looking at those kinds of uh, unique dynamics that don't exist today, there's no organization that really has that today, we can get something that we can't get anywhere else. And so the value of history research, I believe, is on the cusp of a, of a reawakening. And of course, as you know, I'm a, I'm a former chair. I just stepped down this year. I finished my obligation. I was chair of the management history division in the Academy of Management. And the research that's going on there and the, 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 the values and the beliefs of the people in that division are very much in line with that. And I think um, I'd like to make a big contribution in that direction. Hmm. Well, awesome. We'll, we'll be looking for that. And truthfully, I believe this is the beginning of that that huge contribution. I think um, taking the lessons of Spinoza and the, the uh, cliche about being doomed to repeat history, etc., um, taking them and applying them in an area that I don't. I think we 
don't investigate too much. I think we hear the word mutiny, we think we know what it means, we think we know all the lessons of it, and the truth is we don't. We we look at uh, mutiny on the bounty, and we don't even realize uh, the power of mutiny and its bounty, which uh, I love the choice of title for that reason. So I want to again encourage our listeners, check this book out, learn the lessons of history in order to better understand the present, specifically entrepreneurs, the parallels are there, and there are lessons, rich in lessons for you um, to learn. Patrick, Thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you very much for having me.